All interviews presented on the Remedy Revolution podcast are designed to provide information and inspiration only. Guests of the podcast may present opinions and anecdotes which are solely their own. And as always, before beginning any treatment protocol, please consult with your preferred medical provider. Hey everyone, this is Erin. Welcome to the Remedy Revolution. Today's guest is somebody that many of you have probably heard of, especially in the last few years. He's been very instrumental in speaking with many patients around the world, really, uh, when it comes to early treatment and early intervention with COVID. He co-founded the FLCCC, the uh, Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance. That's a mouthful, sorry. (laughs) And uh, he also just came out with a book recently called The War on Ivermectin, The Medicine That Saved Millions and Could Have Ended the Pandemic. Dr. Corey, it is such a pleasure to have you on. Welcome. Thanks. It's also an honor. Appreciate it. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit, because to me, I, you know, when I first started seeing all the signs of something that was coming down the pipeline, I'll go back a little bit into 2018 in the state of California, where they passed legislation allowing public health to come into your home and force vaccinate you in the event of an emergency. And that to me kind of spelled out, well, why do they need to do this? It was very ominous to me. It made me feel like there was something coming down the pipeline. And it spurred actually a move to Texas. So, But this was prior to COVID. But when all of these things first started coming down, you know, with things happening in China and all of that, what was the first thought for you? What was your, um, how did you kind of get to where you ended up with the FLCCC? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm going to be very humble and sort of, I I mean, I knew nothing when it came out. I mean, when I say nothing, like really, I think my understanding of the wider world, especially of of even of health was was quite narrow. Uh, I mean, I I would say as an excuse that I'd spent 20 years living in an ICU trying to figure out how to keep patients alive with critical illness. And I was really devoted to my specialty, teaching, doing research, patient care. And then when I was outside of work, I lived on a diet of essentially major media, predominantly the New York Times. Like I was a dedicated religious New York Times reader. And so I've learned since then that, boy, (laughs) is that a very narrow, you know, source of information of the wider world. But for me, like I would say everything that my journey of discovery and understanding and my knowledge base now of not only medicine, the wider institution of science, but also um, even the world, it was slow and iterative. And, and I'll tell you how slow it was. Like when I first, uh, so I'll give you a couple examples of, of some that really caught my attention and had me start to ask questions. So that's the first start of, of our discoveries. We asked questions like, like you just said, like, why are they doing this? Like, what could this mean? Right. And my answers to the first couple of questions, the first question was, I just thought the authorities were being stupid. Like, I literally thought this is just profound ignorance and they were making stupid decisions. And But the first thing for me was, and I can I can tell you where I was when this happened. I was driving in a car, I think it was March of 2020, and I heard the radio announce that the FDA had restricted hydroxychloroquine use to the hospital, to hospitalize patients. And I remember being like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, if it, you know, and at the time I was, I didn't know hydroxychloroquine worked or not. It was still something right. that was discussed. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, if it's going to work, it's an antiviral. You want to give it within days, hours to days of first symptoms. I already knew by then from studying COVID that live virus wasn't culturable in the hospitals. Usually day six or seven, you didn't culture any more live virus. So I was just screaming, like, why would they just give hydroxychloroquine to hospital patients? So I, I thought that was stupid. Um, and by the way, that was the first blow in the war on repurposed drugs, of which I became an expert on. But that was my first kind of head scratcher. And then the second one, and that was a little bit more damning. I didn't think this was stupid. I, th- I started to think that this was corrupt and criminal. But it was when the vaccines came out, you know, I had a lot of colleagues whose patients were going to them saying, hey, doc, should I get vaccinated or not? And the doctor's first instinct was, well, have you had COVID? Maybe let's check antibodies. And if you have antibodies, you know, you don't need the vaccine. And within weeks of the rollout, the FDA put a notice on their website saying that 
there was not enough evidence to suggest that the presence of antibodies is better protection than the vaccine. And I, I, that was so brazenly absurd. Um, number one, number two, it was clear. That one I saw was clear. That wasn't stupidity. That was simply widening the market for potential vaccinees, right? Mm-hmm. They, if, if they were going to exclude everyone who'd had COVID, that market of, of potential uh, customers, I should say, would have shrunk. And so I saw that as a brazen, you know, financial interest. I mean, obviously there's other layers to it, but so, so that's how kind of slow I came around. And then, you know, for me, the, the, the real education was in the wake of my testimony for ivermectin and everything that happened to me, my organization, the world <laughs> since um, that, that was sort of, yeah, that, that's, that's transformed me. And now I'm, I'm a completely different person and my understanding of the world and really health, uh, the health system, I should call it. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, something that I always think about um, when any of these kinds of atrocities occur is the Latin saying qui bono, which is who benefits, right? And in so many instances, I saw doctors who were speaking out and who were, you know, having a lot of courage to stand up there and say things that went against, you know, conventional CDC indoctrination, if you will, and ultimately were severely punished for it. And I had seen that before, for example, in the, because I do a lot of work with children who've been vaccine injured. So, you know, I had seen that before with doctors who had been just completely blacklisted by, you know, medical boards and, you know, stripped of their licenses and things like that for simply asking questions. And so ultimately, you know, when you started speaking out, when others started speaking out to me, it was more important that I paid attention to the people who were going against the narrative, because ultimately they were not the ones benefiting from doing that. So, no, no, yeah. and that's, that's a good it's a good point. It's almost a mark of who to listen to because like some people ask me like, just because this really has been a war of information, a lot of wars are waged using information. COVID, I think, was a war of information as far as the, the proximate cause of all the, the deaths and disease and everything. But um, people will ask like, who, who should we listen to? Well, who should, and and I, I come up with like a little checklist. I used a lot of checklists in medicine. I was like, well, you want someone who is, first of all, a contact matter expert, some sort of you know, evidence that they they really know the topic at hand. They have to be free of conflicts of interest. And, and a conflict of interest to me now is as simple as employment. I mean, if you work for a hospital, a health system, a university, you clearly cannot speak openly and objectively. I mean, you will lo- lose your job. And so that conflict prevents you from being open, scientific, and objective. You, you're going to somehow feed into that consensus or narrative that's been manufactured. And then the other thing is just being open and transparent. But to your point, you know, Another added quality, which doesn't have to, but if it's someone who sacrificed something to bring you that information, that's probably information that's valid. You know, none of us went into this because I wanted to lose three jobs and and be attacked around the world by the media. You know, it's like I, I didn't really need that in my life, and so um, you know, and that happened to me. I believe because I was very honest and and scientific with really inconvenient science, and th- and that's really what it is. Anyone who's bringing out inconvenient questions about science or inconvenient science. And what is inconvenient science? It's science that threatens some entrenched interest. And when it's inconvenient to industry or whoever it is, uh, they come after you. You know, Aaron, I wanted to add one more thought. You know, you know, when I humbly tell you, like, I paint this picture of myself as being rather ignorant or not very understanding of the wider world or, or, or really even medicine with a capital M, it's even more shocking, right? Because you know some of my background because COVID's not my first rodeo with health or the health system. So as you know, so I have two uh, daughters who had catastrophic cases of the disease we now call PANS. It used to be called PANDAS. And, you know, I discovered that there's a health system that doesn't believe it exists, <laughs> refuses to treat it. No, no doctors, you know, are taught it. And I didn't know that was a fraud. I didn't think of that as a fraud. I think there's other layers to why this health system doesn't recognize pandas. I don't think it's pure corruption. But you know, my my late career, um, I'm not late in my career, but my formal academic career, the late in that career, I became an uh, expert on the use of intravenous vitamin C and sepsis. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, but that was a war. That was, I, that was my first war. I, well, my first war was against the ignorance around pans and pandas. My second war was about vit- IV vitamin C. And with my colleague uh, and friend, Paul Merrick, 
who's literally the world expert on the use of IV vitamin C in sepsis. And what happened to us and the, the first large trial on IV vitamin C, which concluded it didn't work, which was so brazenly conducted to show that it didn't work, that, you know, I still didn't get it. Like, I still didn't realize, I, I thought that was stupid. I thought the trial they did on IV vitamin C, I just kept thinking that they were making the same mistakes because they were dumb or, I, I don't know. And so it, it's just shocking that when I look back at the things that I've been through in my career and in medicine, that I, I've been fighting kind of the same war for a long time. And war and Iver nothing bigger than the war on ivermectin. But anyway, it, it took me so long to come around to the fact that there's just these immense influences that, that affect the biomedical sciences and the, yeah. and the practice of medicine. Well, and to your point, I think, you know, once it comes to your home, then you sit up and you pay attention. And so yeah. when those things start happening to you, to your family members, that's when you really start to open your eyes. You know, when my son first got his diagnosis over 10 years ago, there was literally nothing. And so I ended up having to start a Facebook group talking to other moms because, you know, where are you going? Who are you seeing? What are you guys doing? You know, what kinds of treatments are working? And those conversations were integral into the healing of my own child. And, you know, when you, when you're dealing with your own children, as you know, you, you get pretty fierce. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm not the same man I was before the pans chapter of my life with my two children. I mean, they, they were so sick and our journeys are so, what I later learned was very typical of a parent with someone with pans. And what's even more shocking, Aaron, is like, I was the chief of the critical care service and the medical director of the main medical surgical ICU at the University of Wisconsin. And I, me and my, and my wife is an expert at interstitial lung disease. She's like one of their expert pulmonologists. Also, so you have two parents, highly credentialed, you know, highly advanced in their careers in medicine. And literally we went to 17 different practitioners, ER, uh, pediatricians, psychiatrists, and nobody would ever even entertain that it was pans or pandas, even when we would ask them, it was immediate no, you know? And so like, and that I, I'll never forget those experiences. And, and, and I, I suffered a lot. There was so much trauma watching the suffering of my kids and the failure of the system to address them or even believe that they were sick. You know, they were given diagnoses of functional neurologic disorder. I mean, the, the, the whole, every piece of insanity around that. And I don't know that, that just, yeah, that, 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 that changed me. Yeah. Yeah. And oh yeah, to your point about like when they come into your home. So like, yeah, when it affects you personally, suddenly you get drawn in and, oh, that this is the point I want to make. Like I didn't realize only until recently. And I can't believe, cause I, I actually, I'm on the board of a, of a nonprofit called the foundation for children with neuroimmune disorders. It's now called neuroimmune.org. You're probably familiar with the organization. Yeah. You know, I've worked with uh, Anna, the founder for years. She's a close friend of mine. And and all the years that we've talked, like I never made the connection between the rise in pans and pandas correlating with the explosion of the childhood vaccine schedule. Like I never thought of my kids as vaccine injured. And now I do. I, I think of that my family and my life was, you know, I wouldn't say destroyed because we've recovered, we've come through, um, but we endured endless trauma from that, that one manifestation of, of a vaccine-induced disease. And, um, you know, and and then the other thing is, so now, right, with COVID, we're jumping around on all these topics, but like, so I became expert on ivermectin and early treatment, you know, we could talk about that war, but, you know, I also started deeply studying the COVID vaccines. And once I re relatively quickly determined that these were the most toxic things I've ever, ever studied, I started seeing some things around childhood vaccines, like some interesting data, right? Asking really disturbing questions about this childhood vaccine schedule. And I started deep into it. And, and the book that transformed me was Turtles All the Way Down. I mean, I, I've never read a more compelling, expert, well-presented sort of analysis of the history of those childhood vaccines, yeah. their safety. Or I should say their non-safety, non-efficacy. But to your point, like, I had never questioned vaccines. And the reason why is I didn't know anyone who was vaccine injured. Turns out I lived through a huge <laughs> trauma vaccine, but I knew of no one who was vaccinated. I never heard of anyone with a problem. No one ever told me. You know, and, and I think that's what involves so many of them, the health freedom movement that I've, uh, I'm now in because I go to a lot of conferences. I'm asked to speak a lot about what I've learned. And 
I, I wouldn't say everyone, but nearly everyone is someone who's been directly touched by a vaccine injury. It's it's tiger moms. And I'm saying that in a good way, you know, fierce, you know, mama bears out there really advocating for their kids. And but yeah, it's usually something personal that draws you in. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, um, I was going to hold up my book, but um, Zoe O'Toole has been on the podcast before. So for those of you listening or who are interested in learning more about turtles all the way down, uh, you're welcome to visit our previous episode uh, on turtles all the way down with Zoe O'Toole. But in uh, my early days of diagnosis with my son, you know, it was, you know, Zoe was one of those moms who was interjecting all of these kinds of things about, you know, what we needed to understand about vaccine injury. And to be honest, you know, my son was never vaccinated. And so even though he did develop an extremely severe case of PANS, um, which was called PANDAS at the time, and he was diagnosed by Dr. Bob Sears in California. And we we still, you know, had no idea at that point where to go. And especially because, you know, when you when you're in that situation where you feel like, you know, but I didn't do the things that I thought might be have caused those kinds of ailments. And still, I wind up with a child who's very severely affected. So yeah, I mean, absolutely, I think not to diminish the some of the causes of, you know, some of these disorders, things like vaccines, of course, are very high on the list. However, there are many children that are still suffering with all of these other types of what I would call environmental toxicities and things, you know, we've gotten to the place where there's there's just so much in our environment that they're exposed to on a daily basis in a way that no other generation has been exposed to. And unfortunately, that tends to fill their bucket, if you will, much, much sooner. And then, you know, perhaps, you know, a vaccination is is the tipping point, but it doesn't have to be. But anyway, so I know we've gone off on, on multiple tangents here, but I wanted to ask you, so I did just, I spoke at a, an event not too long ago, uh, talking to Mickey Willis, and I spoke about the Flexner report, which I don't know if you're familiar with. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So Rockefeller, just for our listeners, John D. Rockefeller began at the American Medical Association, uh, started with this uh, something called the Flexner report. The Flexner report was very integral in standardization of education, and then the effectiveness effective takeover, if you will, of the licensure of doctors in America. And that unfortunately caused all kinds of other modalities to fall out of favor in the United States, things like homeopathy, things like chiropractic, things that were um, widely utilized in the US, unfortunately, because of this now standardization of education. So it begins really in the schools. And I'm not sure, to be honest, I have not read the whole book, but I'm not sure how much you've gone into. I know a lot of your book have, focuses on the uh, corruption in the scientific community, which I think is absolutely 100% true. Do you go into all the way back to the infiltration of the schools? So, no, that's not a topic I address in my book, but it, it's... That's another one of the things that I've learned because the thing the thing that I would think that makes the book relevant to that is it seemed like the lessons I learned in Ivermectin and all of the evidence of corruption, the influence of the pharmaceutical industry, I mean, this is not new. And what's scary is as you go back and back and back, that's where it gets terrifying is how long this has been true. And really, you go back to the Flexner Report and Rockefeller, I mean, in the early 1900s. That's literally when this started. And they, like you said, all of the other disciplines, you know, were suddenly now they couldn't be approved or licensed, you know. And so you you saw this takeover and control of a very specific set of uh, a therapeutic approach. And I'm a product of that, right? I'm an allopath. I mean, I went to medical school and that's a highly curated, you know, uh, science uh, or body of knowledge, right? And it's very narrow on that. Now that I'm out of the system, by the way, and I'm in private practice, I'm treating vaccine injury. That's what I specialize in. And I literally, my network of colleagues comes from so many different networks, the homeopaths, and not so much chiropractors, some, but certainly osteopaths, but true osteopaths, not the modern allopath that we call DO, um, right. but, you know, and so, and naturopaths as well. And I, and I use a lot of different therapeutic approaches that you would never hear about in medical school, you know, and then particularly, you know, and then learning about the vaccines, like, I mean, you go back historically, like, 
The, the smallpox epidemic and the story around the smallpox vaccine is literally a carbon copy of what happened in COVID. It was a toxic vaccine that made the pandemic worse. There was the victimization and demonization of the unvaccinated. There was mandates and coercion. And it, it was all, it's like, this is not new, right? Right. Yeah. The retelling of history is also very interesting on all of that. And, you know, we, we come up with these uh, not we, but, um, <laughs> you know, the, the powers that be come up with these mantras that are just repeated over and over and over again. And, you know, re you repeat something often enough, it, you know, becomes solidified in people's minds and, and as fact, um, which is unfortunate, but so onto the, the war on ivermectin itself. Yeah, Aaron, let me, um, let me have one point that on your, on that question. So sure. although I I don't deal with the Flexner Report or the history of medical education. You know, the book is structured thematically. Well, it's it's, it's really a, a somewhat of a biography or an autobiography. I tell my sort of career and COVID career story. And then I really focus on ivermectin through uh, the lens of, of an article that I, I read called The Disinformation Playbook. Um, it was while well, I was already in the war on ivermectin. And, and I read this article and it, it's, it's a very short article. You can Google it. It's written by the Union for Concerned Scientists, but it outlines the five main tactics that industries deploy when science emerges that's inconvenient to their interests. And that's where I kind of, I show all of the examples of how all of the tactics of disinformation. But I, I do go into the history a little bit of disinformation and how literally that was pioneered in the 1950s by the tobacco industry. In, and they use it effectively for 50 years trying to protect their product and trying to protect, you know, not I shouldn't say protect people from the knowledge that it was harmful, but they were trying to prevent people from knowing that it was harmful. And they did that using all of the tactics that they did with with ivermectin. It's fraudulent trials, editorials in medical journals, uh, you know, censoring, uh, you know, positive trials of you know, all, all of the stuff. And so it, it's, it's a really uh, overwhelming story because I people who read it, when I look at the reviews, I mean, people are really overwhelmed with, with the story that I tell uh, using those examples around. Our, so I, I do go into history a little bit of, of disinformation in the sciences. But yeah, this, like you said, it started with the Flexner Report. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, I, many, many years ago, I remember reading, I, I, I'm just, I like geeking out on PubMed. So um, yeah, that's, this is like my, <laughs> my weird guilty pleasure. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, I was reading an article, a study, and I read the conclusion. And I remember reading the conclusion and thinking, huh, I wonder how they arrived at that conclusion because it didn't seem right to me. And I went back through the data and the data showed the exact opposite of what the conclusion was. And in my mind, you know, I just kept thinking, gosh, how many doctors are looking at this? They're reading the conclusion. They're busy in their practices. They don't have the time to go over all of the data and comb through it. And they think this is fact. You know, and unfortunately, I think that's happened so many times for things like supplements that are beneficial, you know, because they are inconvenient to the pharmaceutical industry because, you know, they lose patients, they lose, <laughs> they lose <Aaron>. money. <laughs> I want to emphasize the point you're making. So I use a term. In fact, I just learned the term uh, about a week ago, but someone used the term ARP and it stands for abstract reading physician. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but when I heard it, I was like, brilliant, because it brings to mind what you just talked about. Like when I talk about disinformation, like the biggest weapon they did was these fraudulent trials. And you realize the pharmaceutical industry knows that most physicians are overworked, too busy. They basically glance at these journal articles. And you're right. If you read a, a scientific manuscript, they literally go to the abstract and they read the conclusion and they know this, the way those conclusions are worded and what's in that conclusion, they know that's probably the only thing the doctor is going to read. And so it's like, it's like a, a secret backdoor into the mind of a doctor and they influence the practice of medicine through doing that. And, and it's true to, to really know the truth of a study. It's not only what, like, for instance, in that example you gave, you saw that the data actually concluded something different and it was discordant with the conclusion. Sometimes the data actually supports the conclusion. So you have to, but you have to still be a detective because you have to say, what's missing from this paper? Why did they study it in this way? Why did they give it in this dose? Like you can, you can find a whole, so many manipulations. And, and I'm just going to stop there for a second and say that that's one of the main reasons why I'm like really estranged from the sciences now, because 
And I am not the first one to say this. Former editors of those high-impact medical journals have said it before. Like, you can't believe over half of what's in scientific manuscripts for these reasons. It's it's really corrupted and manipulated. Yeah. And I think it goes back to that qui bono, right? Like, who is it that's benefiting? And if it is the pharmaceutical industry who is conducting the research, and then the FDA, who is a revolving door for the pharmaceutical industry, then, you know, is the one that implements you know, or delineates who can use what medications and for what use, you know, we've got a very real, very scary problem on our hands. You know, we've got a scientific community that is beholden to the pharmaceutical industry. And unfortunately, the scientific papers come out in favor of pharmaceuticals. And then we later find out, oh, hey, well, you know, I'm one of those who took Biox for frozen shoulders, you know, so I know. And Aaron, (laughs) we don't know what you just said is so important, right? Is that they're working in an industry that you use the word beholden. Um, Obviously, you you could use much stronger words, but I'll say not only is it's in a system that's captured and controlled by them. And I will tell you that the average physician knows that big farmers there knows that the footprints are around um knows that there's theoretically some corruption they have no idea the depth the scope and the scale of it and and so one of the other things that i've said is that when i look back at my career and what i thought and well those are my colleagues and i i mean i was very active in academia is that there's such a strong implicit faith and trust in the institutions of society society of, of science and you know for instance like the New England Journal of Medicine, right? The number one most impactful medical journal in the world. I used to be under the understanding that only the best science and scientists were published there. And that is a source of so much misinformation. That one journal, I mean, it's literally run by pharma. And so, and so my point is this is they don't teach you this. There is no class in medical school that reviews the history and examples and capacity of the pharmaceutical industry's influence in medicine. They, they don't teach you this. And so most doctors are going around, they're reading their little abstracts, which are placed inside these medical journals. And when you as a patient go see them, so this happened a lot around vaccines. I found that in the COVID vaccine catastrophe, lay people were much more better and widely informed on the toxicity. And when they would go to doctors, the doctors would just sit there and spew you know, this safe and effective stuff that they were, that was raining down on them from all of these high impact journals, which were censoring adverse reports, censoring analyses, showing how deadly these vaccines were, all of that. And some of, you know, I, I, I don't always have anger at former colleagues and the, the wider community of medical doctors, but best I can offer them as I think of them as really hapless, ignorant victims. They're, they're, they're victims of so much really propaganda and they don't know it. They don't know right. it. And they're and they and they became, I'm gonna say, most of them, I think, unwittingly and unwittingly complicit in in perpetrating this this catastrophe. I mean, they they were screaming at everyone to get to get vaccinated. And, you know, family members, children, they were probably vaccinating their kids. But they yeah. were doing it, I think, with good intentions. It's just they were horribly uh lied to. Right. You know, I had Dr. Paul Thomas on and and oh, yeah. he said uh he said that um you know, it, it wasn't that uh, these doctors were intentionally misleading their patients, but they were themselves misled. And I think that that was so important because we are always quick to point a finger. And I think, you know, in so many cases, especially surrounding COVID, a lot of these doctors were misled. And it's very unfortunate that that trickled down and, and you know, caused the, the mass destruction that we saw with, with COVID. And I, I agree with that statement completely, but the subtext of that statement is that it's terrifying to contemplate how easily they were misled. And right. that's the part where it gets you really, really right. sort of unsettled because they were yeah. very easily misled. So at this point, you know, we're three years, you know, <laughs> and we've gotten to the point now where I still think, you know, there are people now even that I still see in the state of Texas masking, you know, walking around the, the grocery store, driving their car by themselves. And part of me feels like, okay, well, they, they probably just don't know. They've probably been listening to something that is incorrect, you know. However, 
how do we write the ship, if you will, at this point? You know, we've got other uh, repurposed drugs like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and a number of other things like, uh, you know, vitamin C and zinc and uh, quercetin and all of these other wonderful tools to deal with the virus itself. But how do we backtrack from this kind of mass hysteria, if you will, and get people to a place of a little bit more sanity and a little bit less fear? Yeah. I mean, so for me to treat something, you have to diagnose correctly, right? And so my diagnosis, and I probably already mentioned this, is that is that the world went mad as the direct result of unrelenting propaganda and censorship. So censoring of really accurate, critical information, and then dissemination of just horrible propaganda, which got us to think and do things that were insane, right? Because the way that my favorite definition of propaganda is that it's a story or a message that gets you to think and act in a certain way. And that's what they did, all of the information that was put out, and I'm talking about major media, mass media, I mean, it was literally directed at getting people to think and act as they wanted you to think vaccines were helpful and critical and going to save you and grandma's life and go get vaccinated. They wanted you to think that ivermectin was a, a horse dewormer that only uh, radical fringe quack anti-vaxxers would ever take, right? And so to steer you away from ivermectin. And so when you say like, what do we do for me? How do we solve it? Like for me, I don't know that there's any one thing that we can do, but what I think has to happen and what might happen is, and this follows on our just what we were talking about, is that that implicit faith and trust that we have in institutions of society like media, I, most of us don't have that anymore. I mean, I've completely, when I talk about mainstream, I actually have a lot of faith and admiration for independent media, alternative right. media, and podcasts, things like that, where you have these really credible discussions, you can go into nuances, but that implicit faith and trust has to be transferred. Like people have to understand that the media, the journals, the agencies are lying. And that's a very terrible world to suddenly embrace, right? But I think that the damage wrought uh, in the name of science in, the, in this response to COVID uh, and not and, and COVID itself, right? That was also a product of scientific research, supposedly, is that people have to learn that lesson first is, is to not listen to those sources. And I think once people realize that they've been lied to and misled by people and institutions that they trusted, that's going to lead them to asking critical questions and looking to different people for answers. And I think that's how the war is going to be won. Because like you said, you started the conversation with the Flexner Report. Like for 100 years, we've had our information controlled and curated to learn and believe and only do certain things. And once you get to the point where you realize, what else am I missing? What else have I been lied to? You know, and you expand your mind and, and start learning things that have been kept from you that are really important to know. I don't know. I have hope for the world. I have hope for the world. But I, I think... You know, it happened to me. And I, the only reason, you know, we use the term now, I think you probably use the term, you know, who's awake and who's not. That's not about woke, right? right? It's like, you know, like I woke up in COVID, you know, other people use the red pill, blue pill thing, you know, like I'm red pilled now. And, and I think this COVID and the vaccines has been such, it's a humanitarian catastrophe that was unleashed using information uh, in a war. And I think it's so overwhelmingly devastating to so many people. I mean, we talk about the excess mortality across the world, the sudden deaths, all the young people, the life insurance industry is reeling. I'm hearing the car insurance industry is, you know, because, you know, what they call vaccines. I mean, it's now affected so many people. And if it hasn't affected you personally, it's your brother, your sister, your nephew, you know, all have been like affected that, that I do think it's exposed what needs to be exposed. And so I, I don't know. I don't know how to get there. I think it's going to be natural. I, I think the overreach and the destruction that was wrought by these institutions in our health system in COVID, I think is going, my hope is that it's going to bring much, much more awareness, like around the, the, the true understanding of the history and utility of vaccines, you know, mm -hmm. for one thing, you know, and among many other things. And for instance, like in cancer, you know, you can use cancer as an example. I mean, there's many different approaches and treatments that are really effective at cancer that no one has heard about, yeah. right? Because they keep this from you. And so I actually think that we're going to go, I hope if enough people learn that lesson, maybe we can live in a world where like we actually have access to really good, helpful information that guides us into good action and good health, <laughs> right? So I don't know, that's my hope. 
Absolutely. I think so too. You know, what has been the most difficult for you throughout this? You know, I'm sure that it's taken a personal toll when it comes to, you know, losing your job, (laughs) you know, being, you know, vilified in the media and all of those kinds of things. What has been the most difficult for you? Yeah, (laughs) I could probably come up with a huge list, but no, I I think so. I mean, the first that would come to mind would be the the loss of three jobs and the ending of my career. But I can't say that that's a difficulty now. Like what I'll say is what I had difficult, like it turned into something good. Like, like at the time I experienced it, it was, it was really difficult. And and the weird thing is it was the last job I lost. That one really hurt and hurt actually quite emotionally, which was very surprising to me because I was well in the war. I knew the game. I saw everybody going down who was out there speaking. You know, I saw people losing license. Like I I knew what the, what the consequences were and I, but I wasn't going to stop. And um, I had my last job was I was actually a locums physician. I was doing uh, just contract. uh, I was an independent contractor running an ICU in, in, in central Wisconsin. And I loved the job. Um, And it it, interestingly, the first time in my career, it wasn't a teaching hospital. um, So I was kind of in almost a private practice model, but I just, the nurses loved me. You know, I was a COVID expert. I could do and treat anything. I, I, I was treating aggressively using combinations of therapies. And I was just very well liked and respected by the people who worked there. But the, the administration was trying to get rid of me and my partners protected me. So the guys that hired me, they were running the ICU and they, they told the administration, if Corey goes, we go. So they protected me for six months. But then when the mandates came down and there's stuff and stuff, but basically, there was false reports of acts of behaviors that I commit. This is how they get rid of doctors, by the way. They make up stuff. They say that he did this, and and ultimately, my partner, you know, the guy who ran the ICU, he, you know, called me up one morning. He said, "Hey, Pierre, man, I'm sorry, but we don't need you anymore." And and I and he knew it was about. I knew it was about. Even though he basically he said he said, "Listen, man, I'm really sorry. I I, I look upon you as a casualty of war." He literally told me that. He says, "This is a war." And you're clearly a casualty. And so yeah. that's how my job ended. But the point is, your question was like, what was the most difficult? What shocked me is not that it happened. I mean, they'd already railroaded Paul out of his hospital, and he had one of the greatest careers in academic medicine anyone could have. And and I, Umberto Maduri had already been forced out of the VA, and he's one of the top researchers. You know, so I, I knew my day was coming, but I just remember feeling really bad, like a bad doctor. Like I'd never really been fired before. I mean, my first job in COVID I, uh, at the University of Wisconsin, I resigned from. The second one was a mutual departure. But the third one was a firing. And I felt really, I just remember feeling like just guilty and sorry, like I'd been bad. Like I'd done something bad because I was told to stay home now. Like I just, uh, it was icky and it lasted for about like a week, I think. And, and then I would say after about a week, like, I don't know. I had accepted it. I, I like I, it didn't bother me as that. Like I just kind of got it and I moved on. And so that that's just one little example. But everything else, it's just been uh, a cumulative drain and stress and burden. So a lot okay. of it is just overwork. I'm you know I just I'm so busy. You know with FLCCC and then I do lots of different lectures and interviews and travel and conferences and. It's just been a drain, and I think I'm taking on too much. But a lot is being asked of me, and if there's any fault I've had in my career, it's not being able to say no when asked to do something. I'd like I love helping out, I love teaching, and and so I say yes to a lot. It's so it's just been a grind. It's, it's taken me away from my family in in ways they're not really comfortable to talk about because it's you know something I should be responsible for. But it but it's really hard when you you know not that not that I had a delusion of grandeur, but like I just felt like there. I mean the world was on fire and I was one of the firefighters and like, you know, how to balance, you know, your responsibility. This sounds, this sounds really great, but your responsibility to mankind or your responsibility to behave ethically and morally. And then the responsibilities to your family. And I I don't say that I did that perfectly throughout. I, I I definitely let COVID kind of consume me a bit. And and I think that's probably the most difficult part is how much COVID consume me. I'm better now. I think I, I'm not, I'm not great. I'm, I'm still having all those you know, what is it? Work-life quality, you know, balance issues, but I'm much better at it. I, I, I think I'm, I'm kind of a little bit more settled. I know the journey and the road ahead is going to be long and we're not going to win it overnight, you know, and nor is it, I think, uh, something that can be understood in terms of wins and losses. Uh, you know, I think it's not about wins and losses. I think it's, it's literally, I like the model of like, you know, saving one little starling at a time. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, 
Like, like I use this example. At one point, I write in the book that we didn't lose the war on ivermectin. We fought it to a stalemate, meaning that, yes, overall in the world, the majority of advanced health economies around the world, ivermectin is verboten, right? It's not going to be used. If a doctor hasn't used it yet, they'll never start using it now. But during that war, we got a good portion of the planet to understand how effective ivermectin is in COVID. There are millions of people whose lives were saved, millions of doctors around the world who used it, and, and they will continue to use it. So, you know what I'm saying by, by a stalemate? So I, I don't know it's about winning overall and, and, and you know, because it's, it's always going to be a war and a grind, but we, I think we saved a lot of souls along the way. Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, I I do want to make this point because I think it's so important. So, you know, for those of you listening who aren't aware, the uh, vaccines needed to be rushed through the market uh, on an emergency use authorization. And that EUA is really the linchpin that prevented so much of this early treatment because the EUA prevented any other medication from being effective in the treatment of COVID in order to push through the vaccines. So um, maybe you could speak a little bit to that and and some of the corruption that went on uh, yeah. during that whole situation. Yeah, so, so, um, so I'm often asked uh, when I speak about what happened with ivermectin, you know, the question, the, one of the first questions is, you know, why, why did they, you know, Dr. Corey, you claim that there was this global conspiratorial <laughs> attack on ivermectin, which, I detail very and document very well, but but why? Who? And and again, it's almost like keep on right? Is your 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 example, right? Like who benefits? So it's so clear. So the greatest. So what the reason why ivermectin was attacked is because it literally threatened. And let's just talk about financially. It threatened a marketplace. If you add up the entire global vaccine campaign, Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, monoclonal antibodies, and Remdesivir over the three years, you're, you're talking about a market north of a hundred billion dollars. And that's a market that an industry called the pharmaceutical industry participates, which has a long documented criminal history. It's probably the most depraved industry uh, or corporations that have ever existed. Well, that's, that, that's, I shouldn't say that, but today I think they're the most corrupt. But, you know, so ivermectin was a huge threat. And by the way, so I wrote the book called The War on Ivermectin, but my colleagues could have written the book, The War on Hydroxychloroquine. It was the same war, same tactic, same result. Hydroxychloroquine also threatened that market. I mean, and so, but the EUA is probably the number one because the, the big driver of it was the, was the vaccine market and the vaccine campaign. And, and you're right, they could not allow evidence of efficacy of ivermectin to get out there into common knowledge because you're right, it would have invalidated the, uh, the, the authorization of these vaccines. So, so they took part of that uh, corrupt vaccine campaign was suppressing early treatment for sure. That, that, was, that was the main driver. But yeah, it, it was a massive threat. I mean, Ivermectin costs like less than a dollar to manufacture. I think it's six cents a pill in India to manufacture, and it, it can be bought for extremely cheaply. It's widely available. It's one of the safest medicines. I mean, it, it was it was such a huge threat. It was like exactly the enemy of everything in COVID, uh, at least those financial interests. Yeah, absolutely. And at, at what point do you draw the line and say that this was genocide? You know, I mean, let's just be really frank about it because. Unfortunately, you know, people were denied treatment, Um, you know, people coming into the hospitals, or if they were given treatment, it was treatment that was very aggressive, put on ventilators, which then they ended up declining. And, you know, the the rate of survival uh, on a ventilator was quite low, unfortunately. And, um, you know, when you think about all of the incidences and hospitalizations and deaths that could have been prevented with some of the early treatment, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, <laughs> maybe is this genocide. is conspiratorial, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a strong word, but it, it's, it's, a, it's totally reasonable to use the word. I mean, because as an expert on COVID, the actions and the policies that emitted from literally our health agencies and institutions directly led to millions and millions of death. And I do believe that there are people generally high up in those uh, that knew this. They knew what the implications were. They don't care. It's normalized, I think, in, in a pharmaceutical corporation. They really don't care. They do not care. You mentioned Vioxx before, right? I mean, they, there are people who suppressed the adverse, you know, the the toxicity of Vioxx, that it was killing people, right? And the experts that testified in that case, I think 
they said like it was like four jumbo jetliners crashing every week, killing people for five years that whatever Vioxx was on the market that killed whatever 60,000 people. I mean, and that's just one example of what they're capable of. And here you're right. The suppression of early treatments led to millions and millions of needless deaths. And, and I've said that from the beginning and I still say that today. And that's again, going back to my point before. And it's like, if people can learn this lesson, they would be much more worldwide. And I think they'll be able to navigate forward uh, much better to protect themselves, their families, their livelihoods, their health. And because you need good information to do that, you, to make decisions, you need accurate, sound information. And um, they have to understand that that's not what they got in COVID. Absolutely. Well, we are reaching the end of our time. And uh, something that we do here on the podcast is we give all of our guests the same eight questions. This is to dive a little bit deeper, get to know our guests a little bit more on a personal level and understand what makes them tick. So Dr. Corey, are you ready for the eight questions? Sure. (laughs) All right. Number one, if you could choose only one natural remedy for the rest of your life, what would it be? (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, I, I let, maybe I should say it's something that I'm taking right now. I, I take it religiously. I take natokinase. Ah, very well, cool. I mean, that list that I could choose from is very, very long. I, <laughs> I just, I, I like natokinase. I like, uh, you know, I'm getting interested in studying the anti-aging thing, but you know, natto is like a staple of the Japanese diet. They have incredible longevity, very low heart disease. And so, uh, yeah, I take that regularly. I, th- I think I plan to for the rest of my life. So I'll go with that one. Awesome. Number two, tell us something most people don't know about you. <laughs> oh, there's there's a hundred things I can say. I'm going to say the one that's most germane to our discussion, which is really embarrassing. But two things that, you, that are related. Fun facts, not so fun facts about me. Number one, I went to medical school at 29 because I literally almost failed out of college. <laughs> so that's one fun fact. Um, I was actually really good at like the standardized test, but I just partied too much in college. And so I spent my 20s going, I was in the restaurant business. So I did like everything you can in the front of the house to managing, catering manager, head waiter, everything. But while doing that, I always, I really wanted to go to medical school. So I went to graduate school and I studied public health thinking that would, you know, strengthen my application to go to medical school. And while in graduate school, I got hired by a professor And I was the project director of a large CDC-funded project studying various incentives to get Medicaid providers to increase their vaccination rates. Very interesting. Is that a weird fact? That's literally (laughs) me. We we talked about vaccines and everything I've learned, but literally in my 20s, I was working for the CDC trying to figure out how to incentivize doctors to jab kids more. Yeah. And one of them was a financial incentive. It was actually, it was a bonus payment. You got $15 for every shot that you gave. Another one was like education. Another one was peer, uh, peer comparisons, you know, try to get people to vaccinate more. And anyway, so that's not something I like uh, that I'm proud of, but it, it's really shocking to see that's what I was doing in my twenties. Yeah, absolutely. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. So if I were to compile a playlist of happy music, what song would you suggest be added? Happy music, happy music. Oh, there's so many songs with good vibes and groove. Uh, how about a, how about a, a little bit standard one? How about Three Little Birds by Bob Marley? Oh, I love it. Yeah, right? very cool. That's a nice song. That's a happy <laughs> song. Uh, number four is what's your favorite guilty pleasure? Um, I, I can't admit it, so I'm going to give you a more PC one. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll, nah, I'm not going to admit it. So, well, I, I used to be a, a heavy smoker. Um, I, I don't smoke anymore, but um, I have fiddled with the, the the vape a little bit. So that's a guilty pleasure. Uh, that and ice cream. <laughs> ah. <laughs> very cool. Um, what flavor? Ben vanilla for sure. I mean, lots of flavors, but it has to be vanilla based. Um, yeah. I love a good vanilla ice cream. Wow. Nothing better. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm big on vanilla bean ice cream. I, yes. I'm not, bean, yeah. That's, yeah. That's kind of what I meant by a good vanilla, you know, good <laughs> vanilla bean ice cream for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What's the most influential book you've ever read? Oh, wow. Well, uh, I'm just, my memory is, everything's about recency. So I will say um, Turtles All the Way Down uh, was such an impactful book, not just on the vaccines, 
But it also, it, it, it cemented everything that I'd been studying in COVID about the history and corruption of what's, you know, like what we talked about, the education. It, it, it's just, it's, it, oh, it was, it's a very powerful book. Um, but then I'll, I'll give you a second answer. Not the most influential book, but I will tell you the book, which is my favorite for decades, it is a book I read in my 20s called um, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. It, it's an 850-page novel and I read it three times. I was so obsessed with that book. It was one of the funniest, most interesting books I've ever read. And it was just such a huge part of my 20s that I just have to put out that book. It's called Infinite Jest. Awesome. One I've never heard of. So I'll have to put that on my list. Okay. Um, what does the word revolution mean to you? It's to me, it's it's fighting back against injustice. I I, I think it, it's 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 it literally it's the I think of it's people mobilizing and and fighting against about against some sort of oppressive government condition state of society something yes it's 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 a fighting back and what does the word remedy mean to you i would say repair yeah i like that <laughs> yeah. all right last question if you could impart one piece of knowledge onto our listeners what would that be <laughs> Oh, one piece of knowledge. I, I mean, I guess my head is where it's been for the last hour, but um, ask questions. Be very skeptical of anything that comes from any authoritative source, um, just because I, I believe all of those institutions of authority have been uh, thoroughly captured uh, by the, those whose interests do not align with ours. So just ask lots of questions, <laughs> ask as many questions, be skeptical of anything official, anything consensus, just be very skeptical. Not that it's all wrong or all, all lies, but uh, I just want everyone to ask more questions. Yeah. I think it would be a better world, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So lastly, Dr. Corey, where can people find you? Oh yeah. So few places. So obviously first I'll start with, uh, my, uh, our nonprofit called the FLCCC. So that's FLCCC.net. Then I write on Substack, uh, a Substack called medical musings. So that's PierreCorey.substack.com. Um, I touch on a lot of different topics there. Uh, and then my private practice where I specialize in the treatment of long COVID and COVID-19 vaccine injury, um, that's drpiercorey.com. We call it the leading edge clinic and we see patients in all 50 states by telehealth. So wonderful. It's been such a pleasure, Dr. Corey. I hope we can connect further at another time. Thank you all for listening. Hope you have a great day. Bye-bye. Oh, <laughs>